we're married, just so everybody knows. <laughs> just want to clarify that. Um, glad you're here this morning. My name is Lindsay, married to John, our lead pastor. Super honored to be able to share with you this morning. I'll be honest, I'm a little surprised that we're here this morning, given all the weather stuff that we heard about yesterday and all the closings that happened yesterday and, you know, the warnings to not go out on the road, all that crazy stuff. Um, but I did get out for a couple minutes, a couple hours yesterday. Uh, my sister-in-law, John's sister, Jordan, is getting married in May to her fiance, Sam, and I have the privilege of being the matron of honor at her wedding. So yesterday we went and we did the taste test for her wedding, um, for the food that we're going to have that, that day on May 8th. And it was awesome because in, in light of, you know, getting out and being able to do that and then reflecting on John and I've been married for six years as of a couple weeks ago, I just have been thinking a lot about our wedding. I think we have a picture that's, that's John and I, um, December 28th, 2013. I know we look totally different now because it's a whole six years ago. Um, but it had me thinking about that, especially as I've been helping Jordan plan her wedding. It's incredible, and, and a lot of you have either planned your own wedding or been a part of helping somebody plan a wedding um, in some capacity. It's incredible the difference in how people plan. Jordan is doing it in the way I would consider the right way. Okay, she's kind of open-handed with it. You know, well, well, what do you think? You know, what, what do you think would be best? Asking me, asking her other bridesmaids. She's very collaborative about it, and I think that that's the way to go. I, on the other hand, had everything so tightly in my fists that I don't think, I think it almost suffocated my entire wedding because I just wanted my eyes on everything. I wanted to know every single thing that was happening. I handmade all of our invitations. I stamped out little pieces of heart confetti to put on the tables because I needed to know that it was the way that I wanted it to be. It's a little bit psycho, but it was a good day anyways. Um, something that John and I agreed upon when we were planning our wedding because we were in school at the time, was I would take care of the wedding. He would obviously have some input, but I would take care of the wedding if he would take care of the honeymoon. And that seemed like a good trade. Like, you deal with that. You know, it'll be a surprise. It'll be fun. But leading up to the wedding, as we're kind of putting the final details on the wedding itself, John started to do what I would call, he started to let me down easy. And he's like, you know, we're in school we're about to start our jobs. We don't really have a lot of money. I love you, but this just might not be what you want it to be. You know, it just might not be the honeymoon that you've been hoping for. We're 21 and 22. We just don't really have the, the, the means right now to make it happen. And, you know, I was like, it doesn't matter. All that matters is you. But in my brain, I'm like, I want to go on a cruise. <laughs> so... I mean, I love you, but the selfish, like, shallow part of me is like, I kind of want to do something fun. So the day of the wedding comes, I still don't know where we're going. I know we're leaving two days after, but I really know nothing about it. So we're taking pictures together after our ceremony um, in my hometown where I grew up in New Jersey. And you can imagine my surprise when John hands me a flip-flop and a towel and says, we're going to Cancun for 10 days. Well, you can actually see it, because that was my face. Um, our photographer you know, took that, that picture in that moment, and he did that on purpose, because he knew I was just, my mind was gonna be blown. And he was right, it completely caught me off guard. Like, completely. I wasn't expecting much, and what I got was just so much more than what I, um, what I anticipated. And so we, 
got married, went on our honeymoon, came back, and then six years ago, yesterday, actually, we packed up our car and moved to Michigan. We've been here in East Michigan and then here in Grand Rapids ever since. So, um, yeah, but I was totally caught off guard, and there's things in our life that catch us off guard, and it's interesting to see how people react to things that catch us off guard. And in our story today, what we're going to be reading is that the life of Jesus totally caught people off guard. So we're going to look at the second half of Mark chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can start turning there. And we're going to learn just what happens when people experience Jesus for the first time. And I'm super glad you're here today. I'm super glad you braved the weather because what I think that we're going to look at this morning is so critical for growing our relationship with Jesus and truly understanding who this unfiltered Jesus is. Unfiltered Jesus is the name of the series that we're in right now. We're in week two of this series, so we're just starting this indefinite series on um, the book of Mark. And John opened us up last week talking about the first couple verses of Mark 1, 1 through 13. But we didn't really learn who Jesus was quite yet. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to learn about who Jesus was and what it meant for the people then and what it can mean for us now. What we need to know about Mark himself, the author, is that he is a get-to-the-point type of guy. Okay, He is not interested in dragging out the life of Jesus. He doesn't want us to know what Jesus was wearing. He doesn't want us to know how many miles it was from this place to this place to this place. He's like Lord of the Rings 12-hour movies condensing it down to 30 minutes, okay? And I honestly would probably prefer to watch Lord of the Rings in 30 minutes instead of 12 hours, but that's just a personal thing. Uh, Mark is is more interested in giving us the action of Jesus's life. What are the things that we need to know in order to understand who Jesus is? Nothing more, nothing less. So we kind of have to appreciate that as we're going through the book of Mark, and we're learning, they are learning who Jesus is in real time. The readers then are going to be learning who Jesus is in real time, and then we get to do it as well, which is really exciting. So let's jump in. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 is what we're going to start with. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So immediately we learn, okay, John was put in prison. But in true Mark fashion, we're learning his personality right off the bat. He doesn't tell us why, because why would we need to know that? All we need to know is John is gone and Jesus is here. John has done what he needed to do, and now he's gone out of the picture, and Jesus is front and center. Jesus has just been baptized by John. He spent 40 years in, or 40 days, sorry, 40 days in the wilderness. And this passage that we're learning is the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Okay, so just think about that for a second. He spent 40 days alone in the wilderness. If he has any sliver of being an extrovert in him, he is ready to talk to people. I left for like an hour and a half yesterday to do this tasting. I come home, John is bouncing off the walls. He's like, we need need to go do something. Like, I left you alone for an hour and a half. So imagine that times 40 days. Jesus is probably just like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's talk to some people. Let's do what I came here to do. So remember, Mark is, is going right to the point. So the first thing he says that Jesus says is, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. So from the very first thing out of Jesus's mouth, we're let into this conversation that first century Jews would have been longing to hear for decades, that the Messiah 
was on his way. The new rule was coming into order. This better kingdom, this better life that they had been promised since the time of Israel, since the time of the Old Testament, was beginning to become a reality. Something new was starting. The surprise of Jesus was beginning to unfold. So we continue on in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. It says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone just a little bit farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and he left their father, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So Jesus is smart, okay? He's got a serious job that he's about to do, but he wants to make sure that he's got some people with him. It's like when you're gonna throw a party. I don't know if anybody has ever done this. I definitely have. And before you put the mass invitation out, you just make sure that like some of your good friends are gonna be there so you don't invite all the weird people and then you're surrounded by all these weird people at your party. So he's like, I need a core group of guys to come with me so that I'm set. I have my, my friends and my disciples and, and we're gonna be a team together regardless of what happens as we go out into the world. And so Jesus invites these four men to follow him, two sets of brothers, Simon and Peter, and, or Simon and Andrew and James and John, and they were working as fishermen. Now we know that that's kind of a common um, profession in this time, especially in a town that was by the water. So it's not unfamiliar that they would be fishermen, but Jesus invites them not to fish for men, or not for, to fish for fish, he invites them to fish for men, for people. And it says, in both situations, at once and without delay, they follow him. I think this is interesting because they aren't forced, they go willingly, they leave what they know, and they go toward what they don't know. They have no details, they have no GPS, they have no order of events, no planning center outline like we have for our Sunday morning services. They just have the invitation. Where are they going? They don't know. So our question has to be, why do they go? With no map, no rules, no idea where we're going, where they're going. So verse 21 and 22, we read, after they decide to follow them, they went into Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So with the men in tow, Jesus heads towards the synagogue and uh, begins to teach. And this might seem a little bit strange for us because we know as a zero collective, as Frontline Center and New Life, we know who's preaching like six months out. I've known that I was going to do this since November-ish. Our teaching team sits down once a quarter or so and plans out the whole time. You know, we know where we're going, when we're going, and who's going to be going there. So it, it makes sense. If somebody else were to get up randomly, it would be kind of confusing. So why does Jesus just to go up, get to go up and start teaching? Well, the truth of it and the difference of then versus now is that then the teachers of the law, the scribes of the law would simply reiterate what had been taught for years and years and years and years. So anybody could get up and say, okay, this is what our ancestors said 60 or 70 or 80 years ago. And it wasn't uncommon for somebody to just get up and do that as was custom. It was ritual, it was normal. And Jesus gets up 
and starts to do something completely not that. And it says that the people are amazed by it. We don't know what he's teaching. Again, Mark doesn't really care about the details, but we can guess from verse 15 that he's talking about repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. And so what does it say that the people's reaction is? It says the people were amazed. So we, before we can answer our first question, we have to ask a second question. Why were the people amazed? It says he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. The people were amazed because it was different. What Jesus was doing wasn't ritual like they were used to. It was radical. That's why Simon, Andrew, James, and John chose to drop everything, leave everything before they even had a full understanding who Jesus was and decided to follow him. And here's the truth that applies to the people then just as much as it applies to the people now is that people, we are drawn to different. We are drawn to things that are different from what is normal in our life. People are drawn to be in relationships with people that build each other up, not tear each other down. People are drawn to learn from and emulate husbands and wives who put their marriages first, not second or third or fourth or fifth to the other things in their life. People are drawn to act and work like coworkers who work with integrity instead of working however they can to get to the next level to get more money. Especially in this world today, people are drawn to compassion, not hate. People are drawn to different, and Jesus was different. So first, Jesus amazes them with this message. You know, we don't know the specific details, but they, it says that they're amazed by it. And second, Jesus amazes them with a miracle. So we read on. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. So first of all, we could be wondering why on earth is there a demon-possessed man in this synagogue? Because that is like sticking out like a sore thumb. That's somebody who does not belong there. But we're glad that he's there because it helps us further understand this person of Jesus, who he is. Because the demon recognizes Jesus. Now keep in mind, the, the, men, in the men and women in the room do not recognize him. They know something's different about him, but they don't necessarily realize that he's the son of God, but the demon knows exactly who he is. In fact, the demon actually acknowledges his personhood by saying Jesus of Nazareth, recognizing that he was born into this world as a man and also his divinity. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, the Son of God. So the demons kind of led on to who Jesus is before the men and women in the room even have any idea, actually long before the men and women have a clear picture of who Jesus is. And he, the demon says to Jesus, have you come to destroy us? which ultimately we know is what Jesus came to do, but in that moment, not necessarily. So instead of answering the demon, instead of reasoning with him, you know, meanwhile, the people are like watching back and forth, you know, what is going on right now? Jesus does something. He exercises the authority that he's just been preaching about. He, he 
demonstrates what he's talking about as he's talking about it. And so he tells him two things. It says in scripture, he says, be quiet and come out of the man. And the demon does with a shriek and probably not happily, but he does it. He listens to the authority of Jesus. And what does it say? Again, the people are amazed. The people are once again drawn to what Jesus is doing. This time, even though it says amazed both times in our Bibles, depending on what version you have, this is the New International Version, but depending on what version you have, it says amazed both times, but it actually is a little bit of a nuanced word. So the first time is they're shocked, they're in awe, they can't believe what Jesus is teaching about. The second time, the word is meant to mean dumbfounded. So they are just completely shocked and dumbfounded and at a loss for words by who Jesus is. They couldn't make sense of it, but what they did know is that this was something that they needed to follow, something that they couldn't let go. Jesus is somebody in our lives that we cannot let go. He is the person and and the God that we cannot let go in our lives and that people in our lives cannot let go if they would only experience him. In true Mark fashion, we don't stay there because why would we? We're running a marathon through the life of Jesus. So we keep going in 129. I'm not gonna read it, I'll just summarize it. In true Mark fashion, we, we move on and immediately after Jesus heals the man from the demon possession, he leaves. It's like, can't stay here. Too much has been real. I need to get out of here. And he and the disciples make their way to Simon's mother-in-law's home because she's sick. And with the touch of a hand, Jesus reaches out and he, he lifts her up and immediately she's healed and she begins to serve them. Okay, he's just as immediate as Mark is. He's not like, okay, now I'm gonna lift you up and take your antibiotics for five to seven days and then rest, get a lot of water and you'll be good. Immediately this woman is healed and she begins to serve them. And so before long again, Jesus doesn't sit there for a while. He doesn't um, allow her to serve him for too long because after sunset, people begin to find where Jesus is, which is kind of amazing because we know that Galilee isn't a huge town, but it's not small. It's like 15,000 people. And there's no find my iPhone during this time. There's no checking in on Facebook. Hey, hanging out at Simon's mom's house. We're having a super good time. Just healed her and stuff. And then people are like, that's where Jesus is. They find him without any of that. I don't know how it happened, but they find him. The crowds start to gather outside of Simon's mother-in-law's home. And so Jesus goes out, and what it says is he, they bring all the people who have various diseases. Sounds like a place I want to be. Various diseases just out in the middle of the street. Does not sound like a fun place to be to me. But Jesus spends the night after sunset, it says, healing people of physical sicknesses, so diseases, like, you know, like we said, as well as spiritual sicknesses, because he's also healing people from demon possession. So he begins to go into this physical healing thing again that he started back in the synagogue and he's continuing. Then scripture says, while it's still dark, now remember, we just learned Jesus started healing after dark and then starts to pray while it's still dark. Now, if Jesus lives in Michigan, this could be like a 12-hour span right now, you know, because it's dark forever and ever and ever here right now in the winter. But we have to assume that what it means is Jesus didn't rest for very long in between finishing healing people and getting up early in the morning to pray and spend time with Jesus. 
spend time with the Father, sorry. And we could spend a whole another sermon or two or three or four or five talking about Jesus's dedication to spend time with the Father in prayer, but we just don't have the time this morning. So I'm sure we'll do that later in the series. But it's not long before the men go looking for Jesus while he's praying. Again, they know he's not there anymore and they go and they try and find him. Again, shocking, no streetlights, no you know, tracking device on Jesus. They find him and what do they say? They say, everyone is looking for you. Like, how could you, how did you run away? Everybody's looking for you. There's more people that need you. There's more sick people that need to be healed. There's more people that need to be cured of demon possession. There's more sickness that needs to be brought out, more brokenness that needs to be restored. Everybody is looking for you. The people were looking for him because they wanted something from him. They knew he was healing people. It says it a couple times in our passage up to now. Word was spreading across the region of who Jesus was and that he was healing people of physical diseases. And I would have to imagine, just picture us for a second. Jesus walks in here, heals us and our family members, all of us of our diseases, of our sicknesses. That would be pretty incredible. And I think all of us can agree that we would want Jesus to stick around so he could keep doing that. I think we would maybe cancel our health insurance. I think maybe we would throw away the cough medicine. We'd be okay with going outside without a coat on. We'd be okay with getting a little bit less sleep because Jesus is around. He can heal us physically of anything that we need. We don't need to have the security of modern medicine anymore because we have Jesus. And then with that mindset that this group of people have, we arrive at what is potentially the most important verse in the entire passage and the most meaningful for people then and for people now. And it's verse 38. They say, everybody's looking for you. Come back, come back and help. And he says, let us go somewhere else so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. What amazed people about Jesus, what drew them to him was his speaking, but what was really impressive to them was his ability to heal people. But physical healing is not why Jesus came to the earth. It wasn't his end goal. His end goal, we can learn from verse 38, was to tell people about the kingdom of God. It was to call people to repentance and to belief in a better kingdom, a better unfiltered way of living. Jesus wasn't, it's hard to hear, Jesus wasn't solely interested and isn't solely interested in our comfort and our healing. And he certainly wasn't gonna stay around with this group of people so that they could have physical comfort for the rest of their lives because how many people would have missed out on the good news that he came to share about? They would have been good. They would have been physically set, but they would have totally missed the point. Jesus, stay with us. I'm going somewhere else and you can follow me or you can stay behind. It's up to you. The unfiltered Jesus was on the move. 
People were drawn to follow him because people are drawn to different. But we still haven't quite figured out what is so different about Jesus. What is different about the unfiltered Jesus versus this filtered kingdom that he kind of came to eradicate, that he came to expose. It's this whole idea that we're focusing on in this series. In the first days of Jesus's public ministry, he presents the unfiltered version of a follower of Jesus. And it's what we're gonna say right now is the filtered follower focuses on comfort, but the unfiltered follower focuses on calling focuses on what Jesus came to do, focuses on coming to share the good news, to repent and believe, to understand that Jesus has the power to physically heal, but that is not the center of his ministry. The center of his ministry and the center of our lives is to live in the center of the calling of Jesus to preach and teach the good news to anybody who's around us. Some of you might know this, some of you might not. If you don't, you're gonna learn now. But I was a lot like the people in the town a couple years ago, even before John and I got married, um, when I experienced the surprise of an unfiltered Jesus for the first time. I grew up going to church. Uh, There was a Wesleyan church, the church we're affiliated with. It was about a mile from my house, and my mom and dad could get me to go if I could ride my bike there, because I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. And then I'd speed out at the end with my streamers hanging off of my bike, and I was like, oh, see you later, guys. I'm super cool. Um, And I would just ride home, and that was how I got to go to church. And then when I was of age, I started going to youth group, but it it was a side to my life. It was a side to my comfortable life. I wasn't making it my priority. It wasn't a focus of mine. Um, And I I had a plan for my life ever since I was about nine or 10 years old, which sounds kind of weird, but I started doing something that became my passion and that's what I wanted to do until the day that I died. And so when people were going through high school thinking, I don't know what I want to do, I'm not sure what's going on, I had a plan, as I always do, and I felt very confident about it. And then one night right after I graduated high school, I was reading um, a devotional called Jesus Calling. If you're familiar with it, you know it's a a collection of devotional readings that has scripture paired with it, but the, the content itself is spoken from the spot of Jesus to you. So it's using I am this or you are this with me. You know, it's this back and forth, almost like Jesus is speaking directly to you while you're reading it. And it changed my life. And I wasn't expecting it to change my life. I wasn't looking for my life to be changed because I was comfortable, I was good. I was doing what I had said I was gonna do for my whole life. I had banked everything on what my plan was, but this devotional is the reason why I'm standing here today. And I wanna read a little bit of it um, because I feel like it speaks so well to this idea of the filtered and unfiltered comfortable versus calling life of a follower of Jesus. And I also want to read it because when I read it, it got right to me right away. And it might be that for you today too. So it's going to be up on the screen, I think, but I'll read just this little bit. It says, be willing to go out on a limb with me. If that is where I am leading you, it is the safest place to be. Your desire to live a risk-free life is a form of unbelief. Your longing to live close to me is at odds with your attempt to minimize risk. You are approaching a crossroads in your journey. 
in order to follow me wholeheartedly, you must relinquish your tendency to play it safe. It was after realizing this, reading this, that I realized I had tried to fit this filtered Jesus into my filtered, comfortable life. But Jesus was calling me to step out into a calling, an unfiltered calling of following him, even if it wasn't exactly what I had planned. The people in this passage wanted to do the same exact thing. They wanted to fit this filtered Jesus into their filtered lives, and it just wasn't going to work. Jesus said, no, I'm not doing that. So he said to me, I'm not doing that. I have something better for you. If you will just trust me and go with me, I have something better, something so much better. He's calling us to that every single day. And so you could be in a couple different places here. You could be living out that calling right now and just every day is a constant, you know, Jesus, I give my day to you. Whatever you, you need from me, I'm gonna do it. And that's awesome. Keep, keep doing that. You might be shifting over from comfort to calling a little bit, trying to understand what that means for you. For some of you, it might be something dramatic, like changing your whole life plan, like I did. If that's you, have fun. I promise it's better than what you think. Some of you, it might not be that. It might not be so dramatic. You know, I was 17, so it looked a little bit different for me. Um, But it might be daily choices. It might be when you're at work, making the decision to it's comfortable to continue to think this way about a coworker, but Jesus is calling me to love them in a unique way. It's comfortable to default to the credit card, but Jesus is calling me to financial stability. It's comfortable to shut my spouse out or to shut my brother or sister out when things are weird, but it's my calling to love them and to seek reconciliation. Where is Jesus calling you to live more into your calling than he is your comfort? Where is Jesus calling you to be unfiltered where you've lived filtered for a really long time because it's better to live in what Jesus has than what you have for your life so if you stand with me we're going to sing